Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. The girls' campus was set back, I don't know, maybe a mile and a half along a very winding gravel road. When you pulled into North Campus, the first building that you saw was the lodge off to the right. And straight ahead was a bell tower and then a stone path with steps leading up to the administration building and the clinic across the way and what was called the dorm behind the clinic which originally was only for VIPs coming to stay on campus for whatever reason. And that was it. That was literally all we had. I believe that there were some trailers kind of tucked away where more of the administration, maybe clerical offices were, but it was very primitive. Everything was painted in what they called Anawakey Beige. And it's very eerie to find out later that these colors and the design of the buildings with the arches and the doorways and the tile on the wraparound porch was reflective of Mexico. 
I was admitted to Anawake April 11th, 1983, and I terminated May 31st, 1985, and I was 138C. This is Sandy. She's a survivor of Anawake. By the late 1970s, Anawake had expanded its reach into Florida and was now annually taking trips into other countries. But there was still one demographic the Anawake Foundation was yet to reach, troubled female youth. Lewis Petter, once again, using his skills at community outreach, now with a reputed treatment center with a history of working with the state, opened up the Anawake North Campus in Rockmar, Georgia in 1979. In a letter to the John Bulow Campbell Foundation, a Christian grant organization, Lewis Petter lays out his plans for the new facility. Quote, The girls' program will be located on 320 acres of land outside of Yorkville in Polk County. Anawake has been very fortunate in having one of its very good friends provide a financial loan to secure the land at a purchase price of $130,000. By the time Sandy was admitted, the program had already had over 100 patients. Sandy remembers the events that led to her admittance. I was dating a boy that was a little bit older than myself, and I told him at that point that I wanted to run away from home. So we made plans to do that, and I actually was a runaway for about three weeks and turned myself in finally, and I actually told the police that I wanted to be put in foster care because I was so unhappy with my home life. And my parents showed up to take me home, and they lied to me and told me that those arrangements couldn't be made until the following week. And so I got home, and about an hour after I got home, they sat me down and told me that they were going to take me somewhere for evaluation. And they literally bodily threw me in the car, and they drove me straight there. I went through a battery of testing, at which point, at the end of this, they told me they were going to admit me. And I became hysterical and ran to my mother in the lobby and fell to my knees and begged her, crying, please don't leave me here, please. You know, I promise I'll be good. And she had some tears running down her cheeks, but without a word, she just turned away and walked away and left me. So that was how I was told. There was no warning at at all. It was devastating. The physical labor was forced upon the girls at the Rockmark campus, just as it was the boys in Douglasville and Carabelle. A new campus had to be built. The rest of our day after breakfast, we would work from probably 8.30 or 9 until 11.30, I believe. And we did various projects. 
and all of them were very physical. Sometimes we would work on landscaping projects, working with heavy wheelbarrows, rakes, shovels, digging holes, post hole, diggers. The hardest project that I remember doing my first summer, we were building a campsite at the top of a very high ridge. We were hauling two-by-fours and A-frames and shingles and bags of mortar and cement. So at age 15, they would have us bend over and they would put a bag of mortar on our back, which weighed 46 pounds, or a bag of cement on our back, which weighed 94 pounds. And we were to hold and carry that bag of mortar or cement bent over up a mountain in order to make the footings for the cabins. The girls in my particular group were 14 and 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. And I can't imagine how hard it must have been for the girls that were 12 and 13. And this was the middle of the summer in a terrible heat wave. And even though we were in the mountains, it was very, very hot. Temperatures well into the 90s, sometimes up to 100. Girls were getting heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And they would discourage us from sitting down and taking a break and drinking water. They would give us very, very short breaks. We were not allowed to sit down and stop working. This type of grueling forced labor would lead to a number of health issues for Sandy, as well as others. All of the physical labor that I did, and they kept me in Takata for 15 months. So I was in a work group longer than most girls were. And shortly after getting out of Anawaki, I developed back problems. Very, very young, in my 20s. And I was actually diagnosed with degenerative disc disease when I was 31 years old, which they told me was very young to have that condition already. My spine has literally disintegrated to the point where I am now 52 years old and I am almost bedridden. I have severe spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the spinal canal that protects and houses the nerves. I have spinal stenosis, severe spinal stenosis in my neck and my lumbar area. And it is excruciatingly painful. And the only option that I have is major surgery. I contracted a very rare neurological condition called complex regional pain syndrome 
acronym CRPS when I was in my early 40s. It is an extremely rare condition that is a disorder of the sympathetic and parasympathetic parts of the nervous system. And it results in my brain constantly sending pain signals to various parts of my body, believing that there is an injury there. So there is subsequent redness and swelling and pain where there is no injury. And there are many of us from North Campus that have contracted a lot of rare diseases. Many of us are already deceased, and we're only in our early to mid to late 50s. Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis better? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Aniwaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Aniwaki. I think they opened the campus in January of 79, and I came in August. My name is Kelly Lewis, and at the time I had a laundry number, and that laundry number was 33F. I was the 33rd girl. My last name then was Fisher. Kelly says at that point, the girls would receive two laundry numbers, one to show your number from the Rockmark campus, and the second, an overall number from the boys and girls combined. The first number was the number of girls. So I was the 33rd female. Then it was always your last name initial and then the number of persons who had come through the door at Anawaki. So when I came, I was the 955th person to come. I attended from 80 to 83, and I was 15 to 18 years old. I left the day after my 18th birthday. Kelly says that Anawaki's female campus was also receiving patients from wards of the state or through the juvenile court system as in her case. I was sent to Anawaki because I had a long history of behavior issues. I had been placed in foster care and group homes and even did time in a YDC. And they had told me that I would be sentenced to do time at the Macon YDC, which was the girls' YDC. It's the uh, Macon Youth Detention Center, and someone in the court took a liking to me and found Anna Wakey for me and said uh, in court one day that they uh, would like to consider that if my parents' insurance would cover it. 
I was a ward of the state at that point, which meant the state had custody of me, but they required my parents to continue my insurance. Both my parents were truck drivers for the same company, and they drove 18-wheelers. They had good insurance. We had Blue Cross Blue Shield, and it covered most of my stay there until my parents lost their employment. Anawiki's fees for enrollment had increased exponentially since being accredited as a medical hospital. Kelly's family would soon see the result of not being able to keep up with these payments. As I was looking through my records, I noticed that there were letters about how much in arrears my parents were in paying their part. And it was uh, decided that I would work and did work details at Anawaki just like everyone else. But on Sunday, everyone else was off, quote unquote, and they would not have to work. But I had to go and work in the kitchen to pay the arrears on my parents' account. So I, I worked my way through reform school, I guess. We laid brick and block until our hands bled. We carried brick and block on our backs and shingles on our shoulders and we would mix cement on the road and then we would fill wheelbarrows full of it and push them a mile up the side of a mountain and you know we were girls i was five foot tall and weighed 128 pounds and i was probably pushing my weight or more in that wheelbarrow. The mortar bags weighed 90-some-odd pounds, and we would put them on our shoulders or on our backs, and uh, bundles of shingles. I was famous for four bundles of shingles up the side of a mountain. I was very strong. I'm low to the ground. I have torque. I was a mule for them. I'm a physical person, so I was always focused on working, and I felt like we just needed to get done whatever we needed to get done, no matter what the cost to our bodies. I saw lots of bloody and blistered hands where we would have to dig footings for our cabins, uh, and we did those with shovels and picks and mattocks. And uh, it was hard work, especially in the side of a mountain. Rock Mart is called Rock Mart for a reason. The dirt is full of rocks and we would have to dig them out. And we also dug outhouses, which had to be 18 feet deep. We would climb into these holes and with an army shovel and pick and mattocks and fill up buckets and send them up while we dug these holes. I loved that part. I loved being inside the earth digging. I loved, you know, the smell of it and the closeness to, you know, nature. I really did enjoy that. But a lot of the work was very hard and, and very hard on, on bodies, on hands. And the focus during those first years was on building the campsite, which I look back now, we, we built an empire for a pedophile. That's a very difficult thing to, to think about. But that's what we did. He made millions of dollars off what we needed to house more people so that he could pull in more money. Kelly, too, would suffer great health issues due to the backbreaking labor from her time at Anawaki. This seems to be a constant from every survivor who attended the Rockmark campus I spoke with. 
as I look through my records, time after time after time, I see Kelly was in the clinic being treated for back pain. And I have struggled with back pain my entire life. I've not had surgery for it. Um, they've wanted to do surgery on my back since I was 27, and I've refused because I didn't want to run the risk involved. But I've, I've seen a chiropractor and many doctors and taking medications all for back pain my, my entire life. Here's Terry. She attended Anna Wakey during the same time as Kelly. She remembers the physical labor and how it has affected her. Still, as I sit here now, my back still hurts. I think I've had a backache since I was 14 years old because we literally would fill wheelbarrows with huge cinder blocks and bricks, and we would have to haul them up these hills out in the woods to the sites where we were building buildings. And so um, it was very, very hard. The other thing that was really painful physically, I remember we had to carry um, creosotes, these huge, I guess like what telephone poles are made out of. And it would be like two of us up on our shoulders going up these hills. It was like a black tar something that would yeah, rub off on our necks and our shoulders. We would get burns and blisters. All they would do was take us to a clinic, but basically they would just wipe you off and put a Band-Aid on you and you'd go right back out to work. Even when you were sick, like in the wintertime, you know, imagine having a bad cold and having to work outside in the pouring, freezing rain. It didn't matter. We had to work in all conditions, especially living in teepees. When it would rain, in the wintertime, the rain would run down the teepee poles, and our beds, our cots, were up against the poles. And so it would literally just soak the bottom of our sleeping bags. And there were times we would wake up with like a block of ice at the bottom of our sleeping bag from the rain and when it froze. Talk about not being able to warm your feet. <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. My back and my neck will never be the same, ever. Here's Cheryl, another survivor of Inawiki's North Campus in Rockmart. Some of us were really tiny girls. I know when I went there, I probably weighed 100 pounds, 120 pounds. I just feel like that we were physically abused in the sense that we were having to do some things that, you know, 18-year-old strapping young boys do. And we were, some of us were 11, 12 years old, you know, even 16. We weren't fully grown and developed. We would have to carry, you know, five-gallon full water jugs up the side of the mountain to get to the campsites. I remember carrying almost 100-pound bags of cement on our backs. I remember we'd have to bend, you know, bend forward, and people would put the cements on our on our the bags of the dry cement on our backs. We would have to clear trees, and I mean big trees. We would have to uh, haul the big logs to clear ways for campsites, retention ponds, stuff like that. I got there after the building of most of the campsites were completed uh, for the women. I stayed in uh, a frame tent 
for the first, my first group. And then the second group, I was in a cabin, uh, which was a lot nicer, but we still used lanterns. It, it was freezing. It was freezing in those Georgia mountains. We were basically helping to develop land for them. We were free labor. I think a lot of us, when we were there, we wanted to just get there and get out. And we pretty much did whatever they told us. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In comparison to Anawiki's other two campuses in Douglasville and Carabell, the women's campus does have a lot of similarities. Forced labor for hours on end resulting in injuries. 
using this labor to build out the campus, denying education to the miners who did said work. But with these similarities, the mentality of the campus seemed to be a little different. Often, the boys' campuses would be described as a Lord of the Flies type situation, where only the strong survive, and the boys would often punish and regulate each other. While this may have not been the case at the girls' campus, the dynamic between counselors and patients was largely the same. We were very affectionate with one another. We were encouraged to hug. We were encouraged to stroke each other's hair. I remember sitting and laying my head in someone's lap and having them stroke my hair and feeling very full of love and affection for this person. It wasn't sexual. We were encouraged to be affectionate with each other. And I don't know if that was something that the staff enjoyed to see or if it was something that they encouraged to uh, build a family-type structure. It's confusing because I think they mask it with the fact that they were trying to build family-type structures within our groups. But it ended up being we were teenagers and there were hormones everywhere. And it ended up a lot of times being interactive. The mentality, it's hard to explain because nobody wanted to be there. It wasn't really a good atmosphere. It was depressing having to work like that. It felt like jail or something. And everybody just wanted to get as many brownie points as they could and do whatever they could to get out. That was the main goal, was just follow the rules, do everything they say, and do everything you can to stay on the group leader's good side and the counselors and, um, you know, and hopefully get out. There was one time when we were having, like, a group meeting. We would have, you know, group meetings in the evenings to talk about our day and feelings and how people got along and different situations that might have come up. And I can remember a lot of the group meetings started turning into the counselors confronting girls about not being opened, like physically. Like they have a wall up and you need to let that wall down. And they did different exercises. Like they made one girl lay on the ground and everybody had to like rub her and massage her till she would feel comfortable. And that felt very uncomfortable. And one girl in particular, I mean, was crying. I, I felt like being forced to have to rub her and touch her, I felt like I was assaulting her. But you do what you're told, you know, you don't want to go against the group leader. Don't want to lose any brownie points. <laughs> so. Terry remembers one particular trip to Cumberland Island near Savannah, Georgia. It is here where she was informed that an impromptu ceremony was held between a counselor and patient. The group I was in, we went on a trip to Cumberland Island. It's hard to remember how long we were there. I want to say at least 10 days. It felt like two weeks. It was a long time. And we literally camped out um, on this island and... That was, I was in the group where my two group leaders had a relationship with each other. And so they were much more affectionate on this trip. We would see them kiss. We could hear them 
you know, I guess having sex in their tent. And then we started a couple of girls, one of my best friends out there, we noticed another girl was getting really close with one of the group leaders. And she shared with us that she had a marriage ceremony out on the beach and that they were a couple. And I was just so surprised. I didn't really understand, but I knew it probably wasn't right. I don't know, and I kind of felt sorry for my friend who um, was in the relationship because I think she was really naive. I don't know, it changed her, but it didn't seem like in a good way. Here's Sandy again. She says that at the Rockmart campus, counselors and patients alike tended to be physical with each other in normal day-to-day activities. She says this could be very confusing for a young child at the time. Allegedly, the group itself was to represent the family that we don't have anymore. And there was a lot of physical touch that was encouraged by the staff there. Girls were constantly hugging, holding hands, sitting in between each other's legs during group psychotherapy. Things that, looking back on it, was so inappropriate. It was almost like they were pushing a certain, you know, same-sex culture and yet forbidding it to happen at the same time. I am just appalled when I look back and realize how incredibly inappropriate that was and that that was encouraged. If a girl tried to sit by herself, she would have been called out for doing that by the group or by the group leaders as trying to be isolating, you see? So that was very uncomfortable to think about I was 14, I was kind of naive for my age. And so I really didn't learn what a lesbian was till I got to Anawakee and saw how some of the girls had intimate relationships and counselors. A couple of my group leaders were intimate with each other. And I understood then that they were like a couple And so that's kind of how I learned about what lesbians were. (laughs) They would hold hands, they would kiss, they would sleep in the same teepee or cabin, depending on what group I was in, because I went through different groups. But it it was a pretty common thing out there. I mean, it happened frequently. It didn't take long. Um, Once a group was formed and you had your counselors, I mean, It was just a matter of time before people started building different relationships. I started noticing like a counselor would favor a certain girl and they would spend a lot of time together. And and then it would, you know, be that they would sleep in the same tent or cabin together. And, you know, and then everybody knows that something's going on. Eventually we figure out, okay, 
They must be having a relationship. And it happened a lot, different counselors with different girls. I just happened to be in a group where both of our counselors fell in love with each other, but they were also very flirty with us as patients. Here's survivor Cheryl again. She also says that close relationships were encouraged between the patients and group leaders. This encouragement would soon lead to the same type of sexual abuse seen on the other Anawake campuses. I feel like that it was encouraged for us to have close relationships with both our peers and our group leaders. And specifically me, I had a problem with some of of the people, some of the group leaders. I tend to kind of shy away from the people that were really loud, really boisterous, even though I was kind of loud and boisterous too. The group leaders just kind of uh, scared me. I remember feeling kind of at their mercy every night. If we pissed them off, they had these sticky notes that they would write about us every night by lantern. They would write them in their cabin or the tent or whatever. They basically would just write little excerpts about how we were that day, what, what our attitude was like, what group was like, what whatever. One night I was sleeping in my cabin and uh, I woke up and one of the group leaders was um, down between my legs. I woke up and I remember she put her hand over my mouth and told me to uh, don't say a word. And basically, as it went on, I if I said anything, I was told that, I mean, for one, she would get in trouble, she would have to leave. And then basically my life would be screwed because I would get things written about me that would make me have to stay longer because I thought I was there as, you know, had to be there. I didn't know that I could have walked when I was 18 years old. I wasn't there as a ward of the state or through DCFS or whatever. So that's kind of how that started. It didn't go on for a really long period of time, but there was, you know, jealousy on her part. She had a hard time. I I was close to uh, another group leader that was, you know, never did anything inappropriate. And I think she had a hard time with that. I think she was just scared me my being close with the other group leader that I was going to rat her out. And I was scared out of my mind to rat her out. There was no way that I was going to stay there not one day longer than I had to. So, you know, I feel like she kind of had me over a barrel, so to speak. Here's Jill. She was another victim of the abuse going on at Rockmart. She says that this type of abuse was known among counselors even shared. When it first began, I was in the Nachia group and we were building our campsite. So we would all sleep in this one tent that the floor was actually done in. The rest of the campsite wasn't complete. So we would all pile up in this one place on the tongue and groove floors that we had put in. And there was this one group leader that kept coming on to me and, um, I didn't even know what, I hate to say this, I didn't even know what gay was at that point. I was so young and and wild and in my own little element. I wasn't even sure what homosexuality was back then, to tell you the truth. So she would, she molested me. After that incident, I got moved to another group. It was like they were passing me around. There was another group with another group leader that molested me also. 
I did not try to report it. I didn't understand it. It made my life easier, so I didn't say anything. I was like the favorite. I couldn't do anything wrong type of thing. Survivor Kelly Lewis says that while the sexual abuse was happening between counselors and patients, it was being presented in a consensual way to other patients. We were convinced by the staff there that anything that had happened sexually was consensual and that the girls and the group leaders had relationships. And what I know now as an adult is that they were victims. They weren't part of the of the relationship. It wasn't a relationship. It was an authority figure. It was an adult. And it was a child who was held captive. And in that situation, your choice is gone. You don't have the choice to say, no, I don't want to be doing this. You just don't. I was in a group with one student who was transferred to another group because it was discovered that she had feelings for the group leader. Well, it it never came out that they had a sexual relationship until later when that same group leader was confronted by me for having a relationship with another student. Kelly shared a group with Cheryl while her abuse was taking place. She recalls an incident during a group meeting where she chose to speak up about what she thought was happening. While at the time she believed this to be a consensual relationship, she sees today that in actuality, it was a child being taken advantage of. The situation happened over the course of several days where a group leader and one of the students kept having snippy little arguments. And there was a level of frustration. And I ended up, after probably the second or third day of that tension going on, we were behind schedule, and I was a stickler for being on schedule. And it was because of this argument that they were continuing to have. So I ended up calling a group meeting in the middle of a trail in the woods. And I, I, I said, everybody circle up. I need to get this, I need to say something, I need to get this off my chest right now. And I said to this student and to this group leader, I don't know exactly what's going on between the two of you, but all of this lover's quarrels going on are putting us behind schedule and it needs to end, it needs to stop. Cheryl remembers Kelly speaking up that day when she called a group meeting. Everything came to a head with my situation uh, with the group leader when a fellow group member stopped us on the trail. I specifically remember her saying, basically, what the hell's going on with you two? You need to knock it off. In talking with her, she remembers looking at it as a lover's quarrel, a lover's lover's spat. And back then, uh, basically, she stopped us, things got confronted. The counselor had to leave. And my group basically was mad at me. They were told that it was a consensual relationship. And it was not a consensual relationship by any way, shape, or form. I do know that there were several other girls in the same situation as me, in the sense that they had group leaders, some of them the same, some of them a different different group leaders. 
I have actually been reached out to by some group members, some former group members that have told me they remember that night having a group meeting and wishing that they could just scream out and say, this is happening to me too. And they have a hard time sleeping at night knowing they feel like that they could have done something to help me or uh, to help themselves, but they were terrified of that. And so nobody really said anything. The group was basically presented that I was having a relationship with the group leader and because of me that she had to leave. Kelly says that while the punishment of the counselor was not known, Cheryl, as a victim, endured the brunt of many restrictions and punishments at Anawaki for her involvement. That first night, actually, we thought she might run away. So we all slept in one giant room. There was a building. There was just one big room for the ENO, the Evaluation Observation Unit. And we slept in that room that night with her in the center, and we circled her to keep her from running away. I think I remember her being on what we called three foot. We also called it belt looping because you had to hold on to someone else's belt loop. You had to be within three feet of another person at all times. And she was put on what was called board campus, which was a really strong restriction. You couldn't go on home visits. You couldn't go on nights out. You couldn't go on store runs. You were basically restricted and had to stay on on campus at all times. The student has carried that with her, has had to carry that with her, and that she was punished for being raped. And this group leader took advantage of the situation and took advantage of her. It still is astonishing to me that she was punished for it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the girls who attended the Anawaki North campus in Rockmart, the abuse they were subjected to did not end with just the counselors. According to Terry, there were other visitors who, too, were taking advantage of the girls, some even from the church. I was Catholic, and my parents wanted them to approve to have a priest come out at least once a month so that I could have communion and confession, and Anna Wakey wouldn't allow that. But they did offer that I could meet with their chaplain like once a week. My understanding of the chaplain at Anawaki, I guess he was like a preacher, and he volunteered to come out and give um, spiritual guidance, but that never happened. <laughs> the first time I met him, I immediately like got the creeps. I could just tell um, the way he talked to me, the way he looked at me, when he would hug me, like... He would, like, purposely press my breast up against him, or his hand would, you know, touch my breast. And um, he would say, oh, you are looking so pretty today. And just um, commenting about my clothes or my tops, you could tell he was, like, coming on to me. And it, I wasn't the only one. He did it to other girls, too. So it was just a, I don't know, we called him the happy chappy, but... Um, it was really in a bad way. He, we didn't trust him at all. Terry says the girls would all be taken to a dentist who was connected with Anna Wakey. She says he too would take advantage of the patients physically and financially. They would um, put us all in the van to go to the dentist. And I remember the first time we went, I didn't have any toothaches or anything, but somehow, they, <laughs> I didn't believe them, but they said I had like seven or eight cavities. I mean, I got a mouth full of fillings. I mean, to this day, I've got all these fillings in my mouth. I just don't think I needed them. And we all knew, we laughed because we we're like, he's just making money off of us. But the worst part was the dentist was a pervert. There was no doubt about it. I think I was the first one to go in. And so I remember when they laid me back on the chair and they gave me laughing gas. But even before the laughing gas, the it's like a cloth napkin that they would pin around your neck. 
you know, so you don't soil your clothes. He would lay his instruments across that napkin, in other words, across our chest, instead of them remaining on the little table where the instruments probably belonged. And so every time he would go to grab an instrument, you know, I would feel him like pinch my nipple or rub my breast. And um, it was it was a horrible feeling. And I just wanted to get out of there. And so I remember after I got all my teeth filled and went out, I told the other girls, I was like, watch out. He's going to put the instruments on your chest and touch you. And everybody said the same thing. I mean, it, I wasn't the only one. Same thing happened. Here's survivor Kelly Lewis. When I was at Anawaki, I went to the dentist. And as an adult, almost every tooth in my head is full is with a filling. And over the years, my teeth have become brittle because they're, they're the mercury fillings. I never had them replaced. So they're the metal fillings. But obviously, they had some sort of deal going with the dentist because I never had a cavity before I went to Anawaki, ever. Never a cavity. I don't have genetically bad teeth. And when I left there, almost every tooth in my head was filled. During Terry's time at Anawaki, she chose to write about her experience there. Probably around my second year at Anawaki, I earned my music privilege, my guitar privilege. So my parents sent me a guitar, and I taught myself how to play and loved to sing. And so I decided to write a song about Anawaki. The first song I wrote was, I guess, kind of like a survival song. <laughs> I tried to make it really positive and make it a good thing and maybe get some brownie points. Because everybody teased me. They're like, you're really going to get on Doc Petter's good side, you know, when he hears this song. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so I did had the opportunity to record it in a studio and ended up writing two songs. Terry provided me with a copy of the record which Anawaki funded to produce. It is a 45 with two sides, a full-scale 80s production, including a string section, dual guitar solos, and everything you would expect from something you may hear on the radio at the time. The first song is a tribute to Anawaki and what it claimed to be. Its title, Anawaki Love. The pine tree in Red Hill is just what God has made. Take these things, rebuild your life again. The dove and the olive branch sing the Bible chants that you. The B-side of the record, while seemingly still a pro-Anawaki song, has a bit of a darker undertone to the lyrics. Terry sings, Tears may fall of loneliness, in each drop you'll see. A child, hurting deep inside, yearning to be free. i 
Louis Petter had high hopes for the record, wanting to sell it to the families and an upcoming fellowship, Anna Wakey's annual fundraiser. I was going to perform it at their fellowship where all the parents come once or twice a year, and they were going to sell the record to raise money. And my parents, I mean, I was only like 15 or 16 at the time, so my parents were concerned about the money part of it. And also, Doc Petter was wanting the copyright of the music. And so my parents ended up having to get a lawyer. They had like a legal battle over it, which was unfortunate. And I don't think they ever sold the records at that fellowship. I I can't remember. They did let me sing it, though. (laughs) In a correspondence to Terry's parents from one of Anna Wakey's lawyers, Three concerns are mentioned, which her parents want addressed. In Anawaki's reply, their only response is to point out the outstanding debt of her parents for not just her, but her two brothers' time in the program as well. There seems to be the same shuffling of correspondence from one lawyer to another board member, with nothing really being addressed. In a final letter from board member Sarah Tillis, It is finally stated what other concerns Terry's parents had. That their children had not received the treatment for which they were paying. The concern over the rights to Terry's songs. And finally, that they were aware that Louis Petter had been bringing their two sons to a brothel in Mexico. Things were starting to leak out about the wrongdoings at Inawaki. For so long, they had gone on with no oversight that nobody thought anything about it. With the number of students attending and the price of admittance skyrocketing, parents were starting to question what type of treatment their children were really being provided. The inner structure of Anawaki was beginning to crumble. Next time on Camp Hell, Anawaki. Uh, My name is Chris Newland, and I am the executive director at the National Children's Advocacy Center. We were actually the first child advocacy center in the world. At Children's Advocacy Centers, what we do is coordinate the multidisciplinary response to child abuse in our communities. And this model includes partnerships and collaborations with law enforcement, child protective services, medical providers, mental health professionals, prosecutors, victim advocates, Uh, So all of us working in a coordinated manner. At a child advocacy center, we conduct forensic interviews. We do medical exams. We provide victim advocacy for children and families when there's allegations of abuse. And this whole model, which started in 1985, has revolutionized our nation's response to child abuse and how we are making the process much more child-friendly and trauma-informed and not causing children to be re-traumatized by a system that should actually help them. Camp Hell Anna Wakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C A M P H E L L P O D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L.org. 
Camp Hell, Anna Wakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.